Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 253 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a fine art black and white photographer who has broad museum and gallery representation, Mitch DeBrowner. Mitch comes highly recommended from several past guests and has a truly inspiring story about his arrival in photography and eventual journey back into it after a long hiatus. Sit back and relax as Mitch tells us about his story. Over on Patreon this week, I asked Mitch to provide our listeners with advice if they are considering quitting photography, since he once did the same thing. You can listen to this bonus episode and 184 other bonus episodes, as well as gaining access to early episodes, virtual meetups, and other perks by financially supporting the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. I also have one final thing I want to tell you about, and that's Out of Chicago Live. You can join me and 60 other photographers on March 11th through the 13th. This will be my second Out of Chicago Live as an instructor, and I keep coming back because it's a lot of fun. As far as I know, this is the only event of its kind where you can learn from the largest group of instructors ever assembled, hang out with landscape photographers from all around the world, and be a part of the Out of Chicago family. All sessions are recorded and available for 12 months after the event. Learn more and register at outofchicago.com. I hope to see you there. Again, that's outofchicago.com. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Mitch DeBrowner, it's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Matt. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to, to, to record this episode. Uh, you come highly recommended uh, from our mutual friend. Uh, who you refer to as a troublemaker, but I don't know if if that's accurate or not. It's accurate. <laughs> you can say his name. It's okay. No, he I wanted you to say his name so that you got in trouble and not me. John Buckley. <laughs> John, you're a troublemaker. Uh, that's good stuff. No, John's a great guy, um, and we had a great episode with him, I want to say like two years ago now, but Yeah. So, for Mitch, for people that aren't familiar with you and your photography, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is Mitch DeBrowner. I'm a uh, full-time, uh, I would call myself a fine art photographer. Um, I'm 25 years old and counting a little bit and um, married with, uh, let's say, three kids, um, a couple grandkids. That's pretty good for a 25-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I need to know your secrets. Yeah, have a dog. And a rotten cat. Um, I live in Los Angeles. I also have a house in Lone Pine, California, Eastern Sierra, in front of Mount Whitney, which is my kind of dream home. And let's see, I've been um, photographing. Well, I started photographing probably when I was about 18 years old. Um, so that means, what, seven years. And um, But I uh, um, you know, grew up on Long Island in New York and uh, worked uh, just – I can go into more detail of a long story, but, um, you know, came out to California kind of on a grant from Canon at the time. I was a, um, a freelance um, assistant for Pete Turner and a photographer called Hashi. And somehow Canon saw my stuff and gave me a grant to do a show or a book or something out in California. So I booked it. That was more money than I ever seen before. And I ended up in L.A. 
the show at Canon when I was like 19, actually got written up in modern photography, um, which was rare at the time, and met my wife in Los Angeles and pretty much quit photography um, for 20-ish years. So, so that's my 25 plus. Uh, really to run a design studio, doing graphic design, image design. Uh, the company was California Film and did like the image for HBO. If you ever saw like the movie open with the dots flying by, beginning of computer graphics, um, you know, image for CBS network and CBS evening news um, and so forth and so on. And so I ran a business pretty much as a uh, technical person and running the business and um, burnt out um, pretty much that and, and raising a family with my priorities and picked up a camera again in 2006. Um, and started photographing then. And it's been a run since 2006. Um, you know, I, yeah, so that's where I am today, you know, 2022. Um, you know, I'm pretty grateful for what's happened to me. Photography has become, um, my art and my, my focus in my life, you know, besides my family. And, um, it's been really good. I'm that's awesome. very lucky and very blessed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's not very often that you can, that you meet a full-time photographer who, uh, you know, is able to, to pull it off. It's, it's a very challenging thing to do these days. Yeah. I, I know how I'm humbled by that. You know, I, I actually know how lucky I am, but, um, <laughs> you know, we can get into it a little bit, but I think, I think the thing that um, I've really enjoyed about this run most of all is I've never really like promoted myself. Um, I've always let the work talk for my, you know, be louder than me. There's not much that I could say um, that um, my work says more about me than, than I could say through words. So, um, you know, I, I've, um, I've felt very lucky that it's been my work and not like, especially in this world of Instagram and, you know, Facebook and media and so forth like that, being overwhelmed, that is just black and white photography, you know, that people seem to um, uh, gravitate to that, that they liked. So I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky about that as far as, as if you want to call me an artist. My wife doesn't call me an artist. She's supposed to be the artist in the family. So um, not me. I love that you said that because I kind of struggle with that myself um, as well in terms of you know, defining art and defining myself as an artist, I've always found that to be, I don't know what the right word is, but a little bit of, it's like kind of pretentious, I guess, for myself. Um, and I'd be curious for you as to like where that comment came from, because I, I saw a little bit of sarcasm there. <laughs> no, no, not really sarcasm. I think, well, there's two things with, with artists today in like today's civilization and and you know our society is i think artists haven't been revered or respected mm. like they should have been yes they should be and um you know at first i did when you say like you know a little sarcastic it wasn't sarcastic it was um i'm not sure i'm um, worthy in other words right so yeah not, yeah you know I, it's it's more like you know it, it sounds pompous, but in the reality, you know, when when you think about that, I, I kind of have to drop that and say it's okay to be an artist. And so actually, it's okay to make a living as an artist. What the heck? You know, I mean, art's been around since the cavemen, you know, and, you know, the Renaissance and pulled people out of the Renaissance and pulled people out of, you know, depressions and things in, in the past. And it's it's good to be an artist and artists should be revered. So anyway, I always have to kick myself too. And that's I'm not coming that from a pompous point of view. I'm coming that from a place that it's okay to 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 be that. Yeah, no, I I what you said just really resonated for me. That's why I said that because 
I think it's, it is important to say, you know what, it's okay. I'm, I can call myself an artist. That's all right. It's not like it's attached to some great idea, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's you know, it's my art. It is my art in, re- in my heart. I didn't get into like art for making money. I got into art because it was in my heart. And I actually started taking pictures really to, to again, like let's say 2006 again, really to, sh- to show, to make up for lost time for the 20 years that I, I didn't document and wanted to show my kids and my family. That's how it really started for me. I really just wanted to go out, make up for some lost time of documenting what I was seeing or how I saw the world, show it to my kids. And I was lucky enough to have some people see that, um, see the work, especially uh, the magazine lens work, like Brooke Jensen and so yes. forth. I mean, I think he's, I don't know how many times he's published me, four times, I think, at this point. And, and we've done a, a, a monograph together and a couple of folios and things. And he's he's a special dude. He's, he's really a special guy. Um, and, uh, you know, people started seeing the work and, and people then started calling. Um, so I never went out and like, you know, went out and pounded my chest as a, as a pompous artist that thought I was worth, you know, respect and you should be grateful. It was the opposite of that. It was like, uh, it's a little scary to put yourself out there as an artist and people to see you work and see, but then it was like, well, I was getting a lot of, you know, emails and response that was, um, inspiring to me and it seemed to be as, as inspire some other people you know so so i was grateful for that and we talked more about that a little bit about how that mentality came to me <clears throat> you know i mean i really you know when when uh when i came to california i mean when i was in los angeles i mean let's go back up when i was in new york actually when i first saw the pictures of ansel adams it kind of blew my mind because i had never really seen the west before pictures of the west i've never seen pictures like that and um you know the the uh, the image I think it's um, Winter Storm uh, Sierra oh, Nevada uh-huh. kind of blew my mind completely. So the house I have now is about two miles from where that picture was taken. That's how much it affected me. Wow, um, that's cool. There. I actually have a house in that area um, for my family, you know. Um, but um, what was I going to? I was going to say when it, when it came to the art, the, there's a whole bunch of stuff that that really um, hit me as far as art was concerned, and I think. And again, this is this isn't like a pompous statement, but there was a time where I remember winning this award for like the Sony Photographer of the Year thing. You know, I didn't know what was going on. Sony had called and said they wanted to see my prints in in one of the galleries that represent me in Boston. And I was like, okay, whatever. Here's the name. And then they were like, well, can you can you come to the UK? And I was like, I really don't want to come to the UK. I really want to go to like Southern Utah. You know, right? can you please come? And I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. And they, they're like, they kept them being persistent. And then I said, okay, I'll go if my, if, if my wife goes with me. And they said, we'll pay the way, but we, we can't pay for your wife. And I said, well, I ain't going to go. And they said, okay, we'll pay for your wife. So I went to the UK, they had this big hoodoo and I, I was supposed to wear like, you know, a tuxedo or something. And I was like, I don't even own a college shirt. So, um, told my wife, I don't, well, you know, I, got, I had a jacket. So I put on the jacket Went to the speaker do at, at Somerset House, um, and there was uh, it's like this museum, and they had this big thing. And anyway, to make a long story short, there was amazing photography there. Right. You know, social documentary, architecture, everything you can think of. Other 
landscape stuff. And, and, the, and the award ceremony was going on, and I wasn't paying attention because I didn't really care. And then my wife kicked me under the table and said, you better pay attention because I think your work looks really different. And it ended up that I won the award, and I got a big – so I, I went – I was like, oh, shoot, I'm not, like, ready for this. So I walked up there. But what I realized was um, – and it has to do with black and white landscape photography – that um, the people at Sony had recognized at that point that black and white landscape photography was still um, valid. Like, you know, people had forgotten about it, especially with the world, like the Instagrams of the world and all the other stuff. And that's not knocking color photography. It's just that black and white photography had been demeaned, I guess, so, somewhat or not relevant anymore. So I had I thanked the guys like out of all the amazing photographers here, all the amazing images, you picked black and white landscape photography again. And I, I it's not about me. It's just really showed that the next generation, not not even me or my generation, but Ansel would be really proud to know that that black and white landscape photography didn't die with him, that it could stand on the baton could be passed to the future generations. So that anyway, um, really lit me up as far as like um, keep on going. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's, it, that's a long it, story for me of how I got to uh, another kick to keep going. Yeah, no, it does. I was, I was curious as you were telling that story, if, if you were experiencing any, um, imposter syndrome when you were getting the award, cause I know every time I've been on a stage like that, or, you know, <clears throat> anytime there's an article that has my stuff in it, I'm always like, what? This isn't right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's happened to me a bunch of times, you know. And it, and really, honestly, the thing that uh, that makes me happy is that I've never um, gone out there and and found them. I just and promoted my work. I you know got published in National Geographic black and white landscape work, twelve pages. I didn't call them; they called me, you know. And I was like, I haven't really seen black and a lot of black and white work in National Geographic either, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially twelve pages without much of a story, you know. So that really made me feel good. You know, not for me, but that black and white work is coming back out there again because it had been kind of swept under the rug for probably 10, 10 years, you know. Yeah, that seems about right. Probably starting in late 2010 or late 2000s, somewhere in yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. You know, you hadn't seen a lot of black. You know, I would say, you know, back to what you would call, um, you know, collect the quality. There's a, there was a few, you know, but not a lot. Sure. Well, I know you had um, touched touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to go back and make sure I didn't miss part of your part of your story here. You know, I understand that you quit your job and you left home to explore the Southwest at the age of 21. And I know you talked about Canon giving you a grant, but I was curious if there was other reasons why you embarked on that journey. Uh, yeah, just to get the hell out of the East Coast. So that was the main thing. I had enough of the weather. Um, and um, I also felt like if it, it was, it wasn't an easy thing to do for me because I had friends and family and and all this other stuff that I had grown up with. But I know if I didn't pick myself up and do that, that I would end up living the rest of my life on the East Coast, maybe in the same neighborhood that I grew up in, and never would have taken a chance just to go out and see what the world was all about, especially the images uh, that Ansel Adams had shot. I just wanted to experience that for myself, no matter where I would go with it. I didn't want to rot on the East Coast for the rest of my life, basically. And I felt like I had to do this. And it was really scary at the time because I went out by myself. I mean, it, it took four years to land in California. Um, so I was 
pretty much living in my car, let's say 75% of those four years, just traveling back and forth seven times, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, camping out in remote places, um, you know, and, you know, not being familiar with what uh, a place like Zion might be like in the middle of November, you know, getting my tents blown away and things like that. Or being out in, uh, I mean, being out in, you know, Valley of Fire and hearing like something outside my tent at like two in the morning, you know, where there was nobody else around. And also just being young, not fully developed or fully confident. You know, it's hard being 21, 22 and not knowing what your future was going to be. So um, it was, it was an interesting time for me, you know, um, but I had to get out of the East Coast. I had to get off. I had to get out, you know, otherwise I would just end up being old and fat and bald and angry at 70 or whatever. I'm not 70, by the way, but I would be all, I would be all, I would be just upset at myself and not taking a chance. And if I failed, I failed, but at least I tried. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, what you described is kind of a dream for a lot of people these days. So I'm curious what caused you to give up that lifestyle. Which lifestyle? Uh, the camping and making pictures and being in the Southwest 24-7. Well, I never gave it up. I never have given it up. You know, I mean, when when uh, you know, when you know, I've had enough of Los Angeles, let's say, because I, I have a family and I had to raise my family here in Los Angeles. And I love LA, actually. I actually have a, um, a project, urban project, City of Los Angeles actually gave me a grant for, you know, um, that, uh, that I go out to Lone Pine. And it's amazing out there, you know, the Eastern Sierra, or I constantly, I don't know how many times I've been out to Southern Utah, you know, it's one of my favorite places in the world, you know. Absolutely. So, um, you know, so, so I, ha I don't think I've ever given it up. I, I think when I give it up, I'll be dead, you know, I, or I'll want to be dead at that point. So. Right, right. Uh, I was just curious about why you decided not to pursue that as a full-time job back then. Oh, well, I had to make a living. You know? <laughs> right. So and our, our uh, design studio was doing really well. We had a really, I mean, you know, we were, um, my wife um, worked for Charles Eames, at the, you know, at one point, and she's a world-class designer. And, um, you know, she, she really started, she, it's her business. She started the business, um, you know, doing uh, uh image design for the major networks and so forth. And I had just stumbled into her, um, you know, with my portfolio, looking for work when I arrived in Los Angeles. And she'll tell a story about not understanding or what I was saying because of my accent at the time. Um, but eventually, you know, um, I didn't really want to get involved in the business. And when I, you know, um, but eventually I did. And it helped her um, because she could just focus on her, the odd and I could take care of running the business and being like a technical director and making the coffee and cleaning the bathrooms and hiring people. And, you know, I pretty much ran the business while she was the artist, you know, the creative director. Um, so yeah, no, so I had to like, I had to raise a family, you know, and with three kids, I don't know if you have any kids. Um, I do. I have a thir thir mm, 14 year old son. Sorry. He just turned 14. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully he won't see this. Um, but uh, yeah, so think about I had two babies right. while we got married and this business was forming. And if, you know, two babies were like two years apart, you'll know that your hands are full, you know. And, you know, then we had a third baby later, you know. And so it was all encompassing, exhausting too, but, you know, fun. I learned a lot. I didn't know anything about that stuff when I started. I had to, it was all self-taught. 
you know. And the first project I worked on was Return of the Jedi. And here I am as a, somebody who doesn't know what he's doing, talking to the producer of Return of the Jedi while doing the, all the computer screens in Return of the Jedi. And I didn't know what I was talking about, but I had to learn very quickly. So um, wow, that's the story. You know? So um, just thrown, thrown into it, have to be self-taught. But I learned a lot. You know, it really helped me. I think like you, like let's say a photographer, your images reflect the way you see the world, but it's a, it's a combination of, you know, everything that's been in your life, both your family, your technical skills, you're able to do a podcast, your, your, your business, your your love for photography for you as your art. It's a whole thing, a whole mix of things that make up how people see the world. I think that part of uh, the technical part, um, I can go in a little bit. After, after we sold that business, I have worked as a, a, techno, a senior technical project manager at Disney and, and Sony and DreamWorks. And even when I was in New York, I got a job at Sensitometry. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know what Sensitometry is, but it's it's I manufacturing know. film basically. Oh, so okay. I learned how to uh, you know take acetate and silver nitrate and a paintbrush and develop film and read it on a densitometer and give those readings to scientists. And I did that because I really kind of didn't want to be intimidated by film. I wanted to know film. And I, I, the same thing, my technical background helped me a lot because, um, you know, when I got into digital photography, I blew up cameras and took apart cameras. I wanted to know everything about senses. And, you know, I, w- I would just say that I'm jabbering a lot. So just forgive me. I love it. I, I, I was also guitar tech at one point. <laughs> So I would just say, like, the the thing that always resonated with me was, like, somebody like Stevie Vai, you know, who, I don't know if you know who Stevie Vai is, but he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful musician, guitarist. Um, and his, his uh, mantra was kind of to know every string on a guitar, every fret on a guitar, every pick, every tiny little thing on a guitar. So when you're playing, the guitar is an extension of you. You're not sure. thinking that the guitar so i always had that methodology with with cameras that i would spend the time knowing every pine a little in and out about every lens camera how they made it everything about it so that while i'm now taking pictures it's more of an extension of me and i'm not i'm not somebody who polishes my cameras you know my camera is my paintbrush i'm just painting with light so you know i use that methodology just to um kind of understand technically that portion so I could put it to the side and move on with seeing as a photographer, which was the most important part to me. Well, I'd be curious. I mean, you you had said it earlier that all of the things that we've done in our life and who we are as a person translates into our photographs, ideally, right? Um, so I'd be curious, um, <clears throat> what can we learn about you through your f- photographs? Uh, what are what are some of the messages that, that we can reveal about you as a person through by looking at your images um yeah i've always seen the world as a really beautiful place whether it's um you know one project is um you know landscapes of the southwest i just you know it's kind of like when you experience something for the first time without a lot of history behind it you really see it in a in a certain light Uh, and my love for the southwest um, I another project, Storm Systems, which is, seems to be pretty popular. But I've never seen these storm systems. They're so surreal to me. Um, they're just an unbelievable. It's so, I kind of illustrate like seeing King Kong live or Godzilla live. They're so surreal, so unbelievable to me. I'm just trying to capture the best I can what I'm looking at. And then even the city of Los Angeles, you know, I did a, 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 I started shooting in the city of Los Angeles when I couldn't get out of here for whatever reasons, 
goes to life. And then this LA came to me and said they wanted to put these images um, in their metro systems and rotate them for five years. They just hadn't seen anybody take pictures of Los Angeles that made it actually look good. So I was like, well, why would I live here if I didn't like Los Angeles? You know, but it's just like, the, so those things that would say about me is I, I see the, um, that's how I see the world. It's just through the images and, you know, the people who want to sh- show something different the, are not good at that. Let them be the really good ones do that. The ones that do social documentary and the, like the dirty side of Los Angeles, there's some really great photographers who do that. That's not just not me. That's, that's them. And they should do that. And I don't, I think that's great. Yeah. You know? yeah, so. yeah. No, that's cool. I, um, think for a lot of photographers we're kind of still trying to figure that out you know and i think that's part of the journey yeah is- I think, you know i've thought about this a lot too I'm, and i'm speaking a lot but just bear with me here because um you're good yeah there's a lot to say i guess or i have a lot to say for some reason talking to you um you know where even twins have different visions and every person sees the world in a certain way we're all different even twins you know even they you know, um, they they have different ideals and see the world. So the whole idea for me for photography is to express the way that you see the world without plagiarizing. And a lot of times we st- I stand on like the shoulders of an Ansel Adams, let's say. I've learned, I've read my whole history of technically cold light printing and silver gelatin, the camera, the lens. I shot with four by fives when I started. And, you know, uh, Pete Turner helped me a lot as far as uh, never listening to uh, what anybody says about you should do something a certain way. He taught me to shoot like, you know, ectochrome and develop it in C41, which was for negatives and shoot tungsten film in daylight because people said, you know, and try infrared and, and just don't listen. If everybody says go right, go left. Just don't. There's no rules. Break them. And if there's a rule, break it. Well, try it. Experiment, you know. So um, as a person, I think the whole idea is not to – you stand on shoulders of people for a while and, and you, you see things that you like. I don't – try not to look at a lot of other people's work because I get sensory overload and it affects me. I just want to be able to um, photograph the way that I see the world. So I say like you see the world a certain place. I'm not trying to be like famous or great or make a lot. I'm not trying – all that stuff is kind of – can I say bull? It's just bold, you know, it's just be who you are and let it go. Be an artist. Be, let it be your art, whether it's good or bad that whatever anybody thinks, it doesn't really matter. It only matters what you think. So that's the way I think, you know, I yeah, love I'm... constructive criticism. I don't listen to negative criticism. They can go F off, you know, but constructive criticism is, is awesome. I love it. How you can know? you tell the difference between the two? Somebody who cares about you and is 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 humble about what they're saying. And, you know, I have a photographer who really helped me a lot, Nick Brandt. I don't know if you know Nick Brandt's work. Yeah, you should look him up. Nick's an awesome guy. He's totally passionate about what he does. He's so passionate sometimes. He's overly passionate. Um, but, you know, he was really honest with me when I showed him my work the first time. And he was one of the first photographers. I, when I started shooting again, I looked at his work. And I was like, wow, this guy's this guy's dude. He, he's great. You know, and then I got a call from Nick. That's how life goes sometimes. Can you come over? It's like, what? Bring your work. Okay. And he ripped, tore it apart. And it helped me so much because I knew he was being honest about it, you know. And it helped me so much. It helped me so much in my printing. It really taught me how to improve the way that I was producing black and white um, prints, 
pigment prints to the point now, and, and again, this isn't obvious to the point now that I'm like collected by seven museums. I have, you know, six, seven galleries that rep me and people pay actually a lot of money more than I can ever expect for my prints. But he really helped me to get to that level of understanding how to do, I would just qualify as a museum kind of quality print, something that would be a pigment print that would be um, collected by a museum, which at the time nobody was doing. Um, pigment prints were just junk, only silver gelatin or platinum or something like that. So it keeps on going, you know, just that's, that's, uh, um, you know, can, that's how I can tell somebody who really cares. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you can tell. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's um, sometimes the intent is important, you know, like someone just really trying to help you out. I yeah, I got like one other illustration story on that too. I just thought about like when I was first starting, one of the galleries uh, that uh, dealer that was representing me in, in Pennsylvania, you know, um, and he he respected my work. He invited me to go to dinner with a really well known classic photographer and his wife, and they were a husband and wife team. And um, you know, I, I went there and I showed him my prints, and he was like, ah, you know, look at my prints. You know, I was. You know, I've been photographing since 1944, and I say this was like 2000, uh, uh, 2000, you know, eight or something. And look how I never really changed who I was printing and stuff like that. And I was like looking at him. I was like, wait a second, time out. As a photographer, you mean you haven't changed the way you see your work from 1944 to 2008? And it was like silence. And then I got a kick from his wife under the table. And then I looked at her, and she smiled. It's like. I, I would hope that like as a photographer, your your photography would change as you change as a person, that it wouldn't stay stagnant unless you were stagnant, you know? Even Ansel's images, his prints changed. If you I look agree. At school, yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, what he printed in the in the forties compared to what he printed in the sixties. Sixties were much more contrasty and so forth. And I, I actually like those prints better. You know, his vision changed with the same negative. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, Earlier, just now, you talked a little bit about the fact that your work is featured in museums and you have broad gallery representation. I'm just curious, from your perspective, how do you think those two things have come to to be? I don't know. You know, I just met people. I mean, one of the great things for me in photography, besides everything, is all the different people I've met, you know. And, you know, I've had, I don't know, a bunch of exhibits or whatever. And a lot of times at those exhibits, somebody will come up to me who is a curator at a museum and they've seen the work. And we talk for a while or go to dinner or something. And the next thing I know, they're collecting the images, you know. But I think I think that's another thing in photography that's just been um, a, tre- a treasure to me is all the people that I've met. Yeah. You know? It's it's pretty amazing, you know. I'd actually say that's even more amazing than than the photography. I don't disagree with that. I, um, you know, I go on a, a pretty much almost every year. I go on a trip with like two or three other guys up into the mountains in Colorado for fall photography, and um, you know, it's I of course I look forward to the the atmosphere being in the mountains and fall and seeing the yellow and orange and red leaves and all that. But what I'm most excited about is sitting around a campfire with a beer and catching up and talking about how life is going and, you know, talking about stuff that has nothing to do with photography. You know, exactly. I, I look forward to that a lot. That's how I got to you. I mean, I met the troublemaker John Barkley in White Pocket camping with him. And, you know, that has led to various meeting other people like domino to other people you know just like every with with like gallery stuff it's there's a whole different 
for anybody who's interested in gallery type, brick and mortar type gallery stuff. Um, you know, the things when it came to people, the thing I had to learn when I first started, I was getting a lot of phone calls for gallery representation. And I would always say, okay, you know, it sounds great. Oh my God, you know, I got a call from a gallery. I never thought that would happen. And by the time I knew it, then I had like 10 galleries or something representing me. But what, as I matured, in the field, what I realized is um, these galleries actually represent me when I'm not there. So if they don't have the same ideals, if it's all about money and not about art, they don't represent the way that I think. So I actually um, let go of like half a dozen galleries. And I ended up with all the galleries that won't, that ended up being having the same mentality or represented me as a person when I wasn't there. I had the same ideals. And today, the, it, it was right. I made the right choice there because those galleries that I've been with now for most of for like 10 years and then my friends they're not even they're my business partners you could say as a gallery representation but they're also my friends you know which confirmed for me that i made the right choices yeah that's great yeah so sounds like a lot of it just came through meeting people and them seeing your work um i guess it goes to show the importance of making connections with other people and also um, getting your work out there so people can see it. Yeah. Well, just think of the old times of the Ansels of the world and there was no internet or any way and you had to be shown at the Metropolitan Museum by Steichen or somebody just to get the work out there. And he, right. And he got the work out there too. It was like in his 50s or 60s, you know. Today we have a whole different whole different world. But, you know, how do you stand out in the world of Instagram and um, all the different social media in media, all the all the noise, you know, how do you, how does that happen? I don't know. I, to me, it happens because you work um, captures somebody's imagination. They see something that they hadn't seen before. Or again, it's it's not about it's not about doing something different for the for the sake of doing something different. It's just that you know your art resonates with somebody for some reason. The way you see the world, right? So I right. know how. I come, that's why I keep on to count myself lucky and I'm pretty humbled by the whole thing. And I think that world's changing a lot now too. It's shifting a lot. I mean, I had quite an experience this week, you know, um, with NFTs. Hi, hi, hi. Yeah. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> uh, but I, we can have a conversation about that whenever you feel appropriate. <laughs> so, well, we, I did a, a whole panel episode on NFTs and it's a pretty, hot button topic let's just put it that way so i try to avoid it right now <laughs> let's just say i i had a um i was approached by somebody called quantum art and their whole idea was you know we've seen it i've seen enough pixelated monkeys and things and stupid stuff on the internet for nfts and that's 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 not really what it's about And this was about quality photography they were looking for so i had and it actually happened on Thursday of last week. Um, they put up a series of my work um, of 75 NFTs. Um, and it auctioned, it was a Dutch auction for one ether each. And it sold out in 41 seconds. So it was rewarding for me um, as far as um, it was rewarding for me. But I learned a lot about... Um, a whole different audience, you know, yeah, as far as the gallery world is concerned, there's a, another hungry, hungry audience out there. That's a, the next generation. I would say that, um, is sick of old white guys in Congress and things like that. And not getting political. I'm no, not, I think you're, you're definitely right. I mean, where society's going and they want to uh, decentralize that stuff a little bit. And um, let's just say I was shocked at the result. Oh, I'm sure. In 41 <laughs> seconds. 
the the financial reward was mind-boggling. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ethereum took a big hit a couple of weeks ago, but even still, you probably made like $150,000. <laughs> and gave to the gallery that they, they approached. And it's like, um, you know, I put the whole thing was there's no patronage anymore for photographers for, for um, art. So, you know, when I thought about that and, and, you know, I got approached by a lot of people after that happened, I think the, the brick and mortar gallery world was looking, watching what was going to happen. And, you know, I got a lot of, I don't understand NFTs, but I want to, cause you made a lot of money. And it's like, you know what? You go fuck off, you know, because this is about art. It's not about money. The money was great. So there's no complaints about that, but, um, you need to understand, you need, to open your mind a little bit and understand that there is another hungry audience. It's not hundreds of thousands, tens, it's not a hundred, hundreds of maybe 500 collectors of fine art prints around the world, museums, and really people who can afford a couple of thousand dollar print anymore yep. at world. But in the, in this other world, this looks like to me, there's tens of thousands of people that are hungry for this. So um, you know, if it inspires people because they like the art, I was able to show my art to a whole different audience. It allowed me to diversify, I would say, as a photographer. To it doesn't mean that the print world and my the galleries that rep represent me are second. They are still primary to me. But if I can get images out there that inspire enough other people of all different younger audience um it was like a a, a gold mine to me it was like wow and the response has been the audience that i saw that i see underscored and so forth like that are artists supporting artists and collectors supporting artists and there's no pompousness there's no egos it's a whole different hit so i'm sold after thursday and not because of the money because of the audience and the and the reception that i got you know well I definitely can see the appeal of it, especially like what you said earlier. I think especially young people, I mean, if you, you've been in the space long enough, you start to see that there's gatekeepers in terms of selling your art tra in a traditional fashion. And and it's pretty difficult to break into that world for most people. So I can totally appreciate why people would look for something where that is kind of eliminated, you know? Yeah. And I've always been, for me, it wasn't foreign because I've always been into, into crypto. Not, I've always been into Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that since 2017. So, you know, understanding and understanding what an NFT actually is. I thought interesting that I had a conversation with a software friend who's a software engineer today. And I used the example of, I don't know how much you're into software, but coming out of the technical world, I don't know if you know what Linux is, operating system, I and Red Hat and IBM. Yeah. Well, think of all the software engineers who, on open source software, right, they put all their code into this Linux operating system, open source software. That software was purchased or taken by Red Hat. And and uh, monetized and and also qualified, you know, in a, in a positive way. Those engineers got nothing. Um, and then those Red Hat got purchased by IBM for billions of dollars. Those software engineers got nothing. If it was tokenized with an NFT into their open source software, they would get you know secondary sales for NFTs for photography get like five percent of re of secondary of 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 sales after the primary sales. The software engineers would have been monetizing their software in some way. And to me, that's a, an illustration of really what um, the next generation of what NFTs is. So when NFTs, people hear NFTs and they think of a stupid pixelated you know, monkey, it's, it's not that. People are only collecting that because that was the first 
ones that were out there. And they think that 20 years from now, they'll be worth something because it was the first ones that were ever published. Not because a pixelated monkey is really cool to look at because it's kind of stupid, you know? Anyway, yeah, no, I, I, um, I'll get back into photography. No, so. but I mean, the tokenization aspect is certainly appealing. Um, and having a secondary market for sales of your work, I think that's like, there's nothing like, I feel like every photographer on earth would celebrate that. So yeah, I've seen my work up in eBay and Amazon and I don't get anything and they resell for more money than the original print, you know? Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit back to photography and away from NFTs. I, I just thought that was important for anybody to hear. You know? No, it's good. It's good. Um, so you talked a little bit about this already, but, um, you know, you've been inspired by a great deal by the giants before us, including Minor White, Ansel Adams, uh, what have you learned by studying their work? Um, well, I think with Ansel Adams, there was a lot to do with both, um, you know, what he was photographing. And second of all, the um, the technical aspects of it, you know, the cameras, the, the film, the printing. And, you know, so when I first started, I built a, a dark room when I was getting into sensitometry and I got into cold light printing and experimented with all different paper. That really, um, and, and the quality, you know, the, the striving for that quality of the final product being the print. And that's always been my, even today, my methodology, even the way I shoot, I'm visualizing the final print. Um, Mina White was more about shadows and light and, um, seeing as a photographer you know the way the way that i from this is just my personal experience of of seeing and and he that's the way he helped me was usually when i go out if i go out for usually it's two weeks to try to get one image when i first go out the first couple days and i've said this before you know it's like coming from bright sunlight into a completely dark room and i can't see anything and for the first couple days i'm just detoxing from the world and everything that's going on and eventually you know, just like seeing in a dark room, my irises open up and I'm able to see as a photographer. Yeah. And to me, that's probably the most important aspect of photography is to kind of get into that zone of spending time with your subject. You, you know, you go out to the, you go out to the Rockies, you know, and see that stuff. For me, it's whatever rock I'm photographing or storm or landscape. Um, you know, it's almost like photographing a person, you know, and, and I got to know that that person a little bit so it's not a snapshot they really get to to get the essence of what i'm trying to photograph so that's to me the seeing as a photographer came from the minor white aspect yeah i like that it's i agree with what you said about um getting into the zone you know like um detoxing from the day-to-day i i think almost every person i've ever talked to not everyone but most photographers i've talked to They've said that they need like a day or two to just kind of get back into the zone of being a photographer again. And that's pretty much been my experience, too. I mean, not always. I mean, occasionally if I look at because I, I usually go out for like nine or 10 days when I go out and usually I'll look back at first day or two and they're not as good as like day three or four. So. I uh I think there's something to that. Yeah, I know the first couple of days usually I'm out, I'm I'm trying to shoot, and I look at the images, and it's like I just wasted my time. Yeah. I just wasted my time, and I I'm not getting anything, you know, and I'm not even there, you know. Yeah. But it's part of the process, so it's not a yeah, waste it's of time. Part of the process. It's a cleansing process, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think it's important to to study the work of other people. I mean, not obsessively, but um, you know, learning things about the craft of photography and by studying other people's work, I think 
the end result is your work's going to be better eventually. Yeah. I think for me also, you know, photographing storms has helped me a lot because um, it's kind of like you go out there and, you know, you don't know exactly when you step out of the van what's going to happen. You you can see the storm. You can kind of visualize it. And I usually do visualize it way before. I I see this, I have this thing where I see um, colors when I hear music, you know. Oh, Thing of, I usually have a really clear vision of what I, what I'm going to do even before I go out. What I want to photograph, and um, uh, but to, photographing the storm has really helped me um, as far as focus. Not like focusing the lens, but you know, there's a lot of things going on at the same time. You know, compositions changing every second, lights changing every second, and you have to focus to make sure that you're focusing on everything, every aspect. You know, what's your shutter speed? Why is it? Is it a fast-moving storm? Do you have to have a fast shutter speed? What's your aperture got to be? What's your ISO? You know, what's that going to... And then, you know, actually focusing and then waiting for the composition to happen that you have in your in your mind. Because I don't shoot a lot of frames. I'm kind of, like, waiting. Um, trying to, trying to like, um, understand the, um, the thing that I'm shooting, I would say, the personality of it. I like a person. So you're talking about color and music... And I know there's a chromesthesia, but is that synesthesia? What yeah, synesthesia. Yeah, I don't have a word. Some people have a word. They can't function. I don't. I if I if somebody plays a song and I I, I can see the color. You know? Yeah, that's cool. It's weird, <laughs> but but it's I think tell me as a photographer seeing black and white. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, I could see that. But I don't see in color. I don't see like as a photographer. I don't see in color. I see in black and white. Like, and so I have to explain exactly what that means. Um, but that, that's just what I see. You know. Yeah. You see tonality. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Especially when when the sun goes down or before the sun rises. You know, oh, just yeah. staring and seeing that tonality. You know. Right. All that gradation of light. Yeah. yeah you, you have to really look. You know. Yeah. 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 That's my favorite time to shoot is blue hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All day long. Well. You talked a little, a lot earlier about a museum and you talked about uh, pigment prints and museum quality. And so I don't know if you could take a minute to talk about what makes a museum quality photograph. Like how does, how do you measure that? Like, how do you know that it's of that level? <laughs> it's hard. That's even hard to explain. I think it's showing it to another person and seeing what the reaction is, but, but there are certain things uh, both technically and um, aesthetically that I think, you know, you probably go through the same thing of, you know, um, you know I can just say technically my process is like, uh, like kind of a reverse process. You know, I, I shoot, first of all, my cameras are usually modified to see light, to see like 300 to like 1100 nanometers of light. And I filter it like my own zone system with, with uh, red, blue, green cut filters and things like that, just like I would um, shooting, um, tri-X or, or, you know, black and white film. Um, so I just created like a digital zone system and the way I as see it is like I'm painting with light, but when I shoot in a monochrome mode with a digital camera, I only shoot like using live view. I never understood with a digital camera, um, why they would have a mirror box in there, except for maybe sports photography for, you know, faster focus. Um, and I actually helped Sony with their uh, next cameras. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I was, I was really angry when I won that Sony award. I shot with an R1, which was their, one of their first. I had an A28, I think, was their first digital camera. Oh, I had that. Oh, yeah. I love that camera. Yeah. It was like 8, pix, eight, eight megapixel eight, camera. That eight megapixels R1. with the uh, the 
what is it? Was it 22 to 200 Zeiss yeah, lens? Yeah, Zeiss lens, yeah. That, that was my lens. first camera. Yeah, that was my first too, my first digital. Cool. And I got a, a, a R1 after that, which was this the next generation. And then they stopped the R1. I was mad because it was like, why? This is a mirrorless why do you have a mirror box in a digital camera? You create video cameras and they don't have mirror boxes in them. Why do you, you know, so I had that and they, that, that went to their, their, uh, mirrorless cameras, their next cameras, which is their first generation of more consumer based cameras. So I, I was really angry at them when I won that award. And I, it, it gave me the opportunity to have that discussion with them at least because they just awarded me this and it was shot with an all one, you know? So, you know, I, I'm shooting in a monochrome mode. Um, which I know is, you know, eight bits, you know, it's not shooting raw. So I know I got a little bit more latitude, you know, but I'm looking at an eight bit, um, you know, truncated thing. And as I match my monitor to that and so, but, but I really started with the print cause I, you know, I'm, I'm printing with Epson printers like 9,900 or something, you know, and that's a highly calibrated um, printer. So I start with the print, and I, I do the best that I can with my monitor to match the print in black and white. And then I match my white point on my digital camera uh, to match as closely to that monitor as possible. So it's more like a reverse process. So I know that what I'm shooting, looking through a live view, is as close as I can get within this technology to maybe what a print looks like. I know I'll get close. I'll just have more latitude. And again, shoot to the right, you know, to sure. be able to get the the, the more more uh, light into the into the uh, smaller uh, portions of the senses, you know, into the photosites. So um, yeah, so that's um, so it starts there with the capture, and I, I'm trying to capture everything totally latent, like I would in film, so that um, I don't have to do a lot of manipulation. Uh, not to the raw, to pretty much to the even to the raw file um, when I process it, um, and then you know to a 16-bit TIFF or a 12-bit TIFF or a 10-bit TIFF, and then to a 16, you know, 16-bit drivers now for my printers. So I'm trying to get as much latitude as possible, and then so it just you know it starts there with the capture, with the best capture I can possibly do, and and when I try to process my um, my my raw file. After I get to a TIFF, um, I try to do as little manipulation as possible. And you know this probably technically if you take an 8-bit JPEG and you start jerking oh, yeah. around it in, in Photoshop and you go look at your histogram, it looks like a tooth comb because you threw away all that data. Right. Uh, so even with this, even with a 16-bit or a 10-bit TIFF, you know, or 12-bit TIFF, you, you're throwing away data every time you're moving sliders around. So I try to move as little as possible. And then, yeah, that comes down to all the way down to the print and then you usually just hang a print on the wall and you know i had to fool around with rips what kind of rip and what kind of paper i've gone through all those rips i probably burned through a hundred thousand dollars worth of inks and papers and you know <laughs> just trying to get to improve two more percent you know and then get to that print and hang it on the wall and uh look at it the next day and it looks like crap you know and adjust it a tiny bit <laughs> And if I adjusted too much, I got to go back to the raw file. So it usually takes me a month from my first print to what I would say is some a print that I'm actually happy with. I think that represents. I think that's how I get to the final print or what a museum quality is subjective. You know, when I get to that print that I think represents how I felt when I shot the, you know, shot the picture. That's so cool. I, in in my mind, I was expecting you to talk about. Um, the last part for the majority of that, and you chose to talk about the actual image capture process, which I think is super important. Um, cause I think when, 
maybe it's a marketing thing in my brain, but every time I hear someone say museum quality, I'm always thinking about the materials that it's printed on and how it's presented. And But you're talking about, no, 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 like that comes later. Like, let's talk about actually making the photograph first. <laughs> That's where it starts. If you have a terrible right. capture, you're never going to get to a photo. I mean, if you blow your focus, it's going to be out of focus. You know, every little tiny aspect of the process has to be the best that it could be. That's why I was saying it, it starts with the camera being like an extension of, of me when I'm out shooting. Sure. It, kind of all starts there you know and it was really interesting that when i got published by national geographic when they asked for it i guess they had gone through a period where um they had published something that was manipulated and a lot of people when they saw my pictures first they thought it was manipulated you know um so they asked for my raw files my tiffs that i printed with um and a match print and they took it to their labs and they certified it as this is not manipulated which i think at that time it really helped the galleries hear that and that helped the collectors who were collecting my prints. And it just se it seemed to like after that, I got a lot of print sales. It may have been because I was publishing National Geographic, but um, I think it helped certify that the work, it wasn't manipulated. It was actually somewhat latent is a term more for film, you know, but it was captured as close to possible as possible to that latent image. Yeah, which nowadays is almost unheard of. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? It doesn't mean that I'm doing it right. It's just the way that I'm doing it. Totally. Just, you know, I'm not saying I'm right about any anything that I said today is it can be completely wrong. So, and I'm open to that constructive feedback if it is a criticisms. But um, it's just the way that I do it. And the other thing is, I only go out with one camera while I have a backup and two lenses and a tripod. And a beanie to cover my so my hair's not blown around. You know that's important. The beanie is probably the the key thing, actually, yeah. right? I don't know for you, but for me, but it definitely <laughs> is. You know, well, you know, like to you know, <laughs> keep yourself from getting sunburned. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? That the the um the reason for that goes back to life is so complicated. When I go out, I don't want my life to be complicated as a photographer. I don't need to be lugging around all this equipment. It's heavy enough with what I shoot. I just don't need to like shine my, you know, thousand millimeter lens on this amazing $7,000 tripod. It's just like, it is, it's just, I got, I got to keep it simple, you know? And actually the, you know, lenses today, if some of the, I shot with Canon right now, but you know, some of the newer, you know, EF lenses are so sharp, even as a zoom, they're almost like primes, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great time to be alive as a photographer. If, if you're ever <laughs> worried about quality of equipment, I mean, well, you go back to the 828, you know, and look at the advancement from that day in printers and everything to now. And that was 15 years ago. That's a long time, 15 years in technology. Yeah, I just um, I just finished up a book project. It's not really a photography book. It's it's a mountain uh, climbing book for the mountains here in Colorado. And I used some of my files from my 828 for that book. Just mm -hmm. because that's the camera I had when I climbed a lot of peaks, so yeah. and they're they're still pretty good. <laughs> and one of my favorite pictures I shot was with uh, it was with an eight twenty eight. It was called Civilization. It's a picture of Los Angeles, and um, you can't really tell that it looks like it's trees, but the reality is it's buildings. If you look at my website, that that's was shot cool. eight twenty eight. That was one of my first pictures, and it was one of the first pictures because I thought Los Angeles is really beautiful. That's how I always saw Los Angeles, and that eight twenty eight pulled it off. Yeah, man. That just goes to show that it's not really, I mean, gear is important, but it's just one part of the equation and probably not the most important part, which is so funny because people 
spend so much time obsessing about the latest and greatest gear and and spending so much money on it where it's like probably not the i mean if you want to become a good photographer it's like gear's important but like focus on other stuff yeah focus on seeing you know i mean i have a so i have a book that was published by aperture you know the storm's book and that was shot i'd say 80 percent of the images in that book was shot with a, a 10 megapixel all one the photo sites are huge it was an APS-C sensor 10 megapixels, but the photo size was seven microns. So it captured light beautifully. Right. And, you know, people still look at that and they, wow, wow, it's really amazing. It's like, dude, that was shot with like a, you know, a $700 camera, you know? Right. And now you could buy one for like $5. Probably. <laughs> I, I still have mine. A little momentum for me, you know, just, uh, you yeah. know. Yeah. You know, awesome cameras, actually. You know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. I remember... That camera had a better live view than my Nikon D800. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. what? <laughs> it was an electronic camera, you know? Before, before it was really funny because technically, you know, I was taking off anti-aliasing filters in 2006, you know? 2007 when I got the R1. And, um, you know, anti-aliasing filters, I just didn't understand them, you know? Why would you have an anti-aliasing filter on a camera? And then I got blocking filters. They just didn't understand. Why would you want to block what the sensor could see? Maybe maybe in color I could understand that, you know, because you need color to be right, you know? But in black and white, why, why would I let the camera manufacturers decide how I wanted to shoot, you know? Now I've been, you know, I actually experimented with a monochrome camera too. Um, but it's really interesting the way that these sensors camera light, uh, capture light, you know. And, you know, monochrome camera captures actually less um, light waves than an RGB camera. Um, you know, uh, they ca- it captures it beautifully. And if you process it correctly, I was astounded at the resolution. And we can get into the technical aspects of a monochrome camera processed, you know, uh, not the bed you know, um, and having a, you know, 50 megapixel camera turn into a 200 megapixel camera, you know, by, um, you know, having it processed correctly. So that's really? also another really, you know, you have to look into that if you haven't looked into that, but I can help you out offline. Um, you know, <laughs> that sounds like a science experiment right there. But this is all the things I like to experiment in. I think technically it's really fascinating. Yeah. And um, I want to know everything that's going out there to be able to um, just keep my mind open. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to be that guy who had the same images in 1944 than he had in 2008. I do not want that. I was like, give me those three pills that'll put me down, please. You know, if that ever happens, my wife knows that, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, man, if I look at my images from 2011 versus now, it's pretty significant difference. So (laughs) I had a conversation recently with Brooks Jensen you know, and uh, it's like what he published for me in 2007 or six compared to now. I, I don't even know what those images are. They were so bad, you know, <laughs> in my mind, they were so I, I embarrassed by those images, you know, but that's that's good because I know I've I've I, I've grown as far as just seeing the world in a different way, you know, yeah. and technically yeah. grown as far as um, a photographer. Yeah, there's there's no shame in that. <laughs> <laughs> not ashamed. That's not ashamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my work was not very good in you know 2007, 2008. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my my work still isn't good. So that, yeah, I mean, neither's mine. I think mine. Exactly. I, I, I'm still like 
are you kidding me? You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a peon. I really am. I feel like a, you know, I, I am a peon and I still have so much to learn. That's what I love about photography is that it, if you're humble, um, it can be a lifelong, uh, pursuit of learning, you know? It is. Well, you know, talk about Brooks Jensen, you know, he's a special guy. Uh, he, his life for real revolves around photography, not for fake. He's not faking it. He's not trying to monetize. He's monetizing it so he can live. But I mean, I have never experienced anybody like him in my life that everything was about photography. He's out every day shooting. He's roaming the country right now, you know, shooting, um, living, writing about it talking about it, uh, doing workshops about it, you know, go out photographing every day and, and inspiring. Yeah. You know, he's an inspiration. And he's one of the most fun people I've ever talked to. <laughs> oh yeah. He's a crack up. Yeah. yeah he really he's, is. You know, oh, he's just super smart. He's also, he's, you know, we're all, you know, for him, you know, he, he probably doesn't have 20 years to go, you know, he might, hopefully he does, but he's also thinking about the legacy, you know, that to leave behind too. Yeah work is a special magazine yeah well let's um let's no pun intended let's shift our focus uh back to your photography for a moment um you know a lot of your photography involves storms and epic weather conditions i'm curious what it is about that particular subject that keeps you engaged uh beyond the obvious raw power that storms can evoke well i think you know my landscape work i was always going out in inclement weather because I thought, you know, the way light changes and the unexpected things happen and it's boring to be out on a sunny day. So I was always going out and I had a, a special four wheel drive to take me out to like, you know, crazy places, save my life a couple of times, you know. And um, so it just happened to be an experiment to me when I first started. You know, I, I found the storm chaser, Roger Hill, uh, one of the most experienced storm chaser probably in the States. And, um, you know, he said, come out as an experiment, you know, and, and come out to, you know, he explained to me about the way the jet stream starts, you know, early in, in, let's say March down in Texas and Oklahoma and moves up into the Dakotas by July, August, you know, and then with the monsoons come and all this stuff. So I went out to there and, um, what I experienced was so, I had never seen anything like it before in my life. I don't know, like in your life you've probably seen a lot of different things. I had just never experienced something like this. And there's something about, you know, it's a picture's a picture, but actually standing in front of these amazing phenomenons is kind of life-changing in a lot of ways, you know, especially out in the Dakotas where there's not a lot of people and you can get into that zone as a photographer and really watch Mother Nature. I say it's finest, you know, and um, it changed me. You know, um, that little experiment, you know, turned into a the second day chasing. We chased from Sturgis. A storm popped up over um, near Sturgis in the in the in the Black Hills. And we chased it through the Badlands, South Dakota, into like Nebraska, Valentine and stood in front of like a 60,000 foot high mesocyclone. And I was like, what the F am I looking at? You know, holy. That's and it just hung there yeah. for about 20 minutes, a half hour. It's a picture on my website called Mr. Cyclone. And it was the second day I ever chased. And i never seen anything like it before. And, and that was it. I was addicted. So I go out every year now. And there's a couple of years I didn't go out. I went to Iceland one year. And COVID year was a bit. I didn't go out there in uh, 2020. But um, 
Yeah, I became addicted to it. It's just, and I love road trips. So we've clocked, when clocked it on my calculator, about 150 to 200,000 miles of driving now since 2009. Chasing storms taught me about being patient, being stuck in St. Louis for like five days with no storms any place in the country, you know? And then the next day having to wake up at six in the morning and being in like Colorado by like four o'clock, you know? Um, and, uh, and missing it by a half an hour, you know, so, you know, I, so I've learned and then the days were just amazing. Right. Was, like huge, huge, like yeah. huge risk, huge reward. Yeah, exactly. I've the last couple of years. I haven't seen many storms. I've seen a couple, but not like the first years I would go, had gone out, you know, I've seen, and that's time-wise, not even a drop in the drop in the bucket time-wise, but I, you know, I don't know what's going on. I'm not a. I don't. I don't say I'm an environmentalist or anything, but we've seen ch- enough changes now. Like this year, last year we started in uh, Denver. We ended up in um, North Dakota, and at the end of the trip, we're in Arizona watching monsoons. You know, right. and it was like, wow, we're supposed to be up in the Dakotas. What are we doing down here? You know, yeah, just because there's no weather. No weather. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember growing up, man. Like I grew up in Colorado Springs, and you know, like when I was a kid, you could set your watch to the storms every afternoon in the summer. Mm-hmm. You know, especially like June and July, one o'clock in the afternoon to three o'clock in the afternoon. Like that was just how it was. Yeah, yeah. It was like from my standpoint, when I started going out, I never even knew that Kansas was next to Colorado and Nebraska was next to Wyoming. I had no, I didn't ever think about it. Yeah, I never realized it. You know, and it's like that was part of the adventure for me is like, holy, I never realized that New Mexico is next to like Texas or or, you know, I I that's how I am. That's how I am with the uh, like the the Midwest, like around like Missouri and Kentucky and Tennessee and all that. Like, yeah, they're all kind of over there. It's all over there. I don't want to. I don't want to chase in those areas. But chasing down Tornado Alley is is pretty cool. I also go out later in the year, like July and the June, because I just don't like all the people. You know, they get run into all the all the stuff that lots sure. of chases and turns into a big party and stuff. Not into that, and just into the beauty of what's going on. You know, right? No, that makes sense. That would that would probably be me as well. I've I've heard that community can get a, a little wild. <laughs> well, yeah, you've been in a traffic jam when there's a tornado forming you know, a mile away heading your direction. It's going to happen someday. Sure. You know, and, and you don't want to be in that situation. Right. All right, Mitch, one more question. Who would you recommend our listeners learn more about who inspires you or who do you think would be interesting for us to have on the podcast? Well, my favorite a photographer that I really, really like is, is Nick Brandt. You know, you should look at his, he's, he's, the most passionate kind of person photographer that I know. Um, I know, and uh, Chris Gra- uh, Graves. Chris Graves is another person, and um, he, I think he's he's cutting some new ground in both the way he thinks and the things that he's photographed before. He's photographed some. He's worked at the Guggenheim. He's uh, been published by National Geographic. He, God forbid, he's into N- NFTs. Um, <laughs> but I really like him. I really like him. Um, you know, so um, I don't know if you can get them, but um, yeah, look, look at Chris's work and look at Nick's work. Nick is Nick is a special guy. Brilliant. Well, those are two people we haven't had on the show yet, so I appreciate fresh blood. <laughs> Great, cool man. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, man. I'm glad I got the opportunity to meet you. Yeah, you as well. It's been really great, and um, 
I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing more of your work. I know we kind of talked. I don't know. Say I don't want to say negatively about social media, but where can people see your work on a regular basis? On my website, which is just my name, MitchTheBrowner.com. Um, uh, embarrassed to say, I have some stuff up on Instagram. Um, and uh, where else? I think my website, and then the galleries that rep me. You know, on my website, it'll show some of that stuff. Okay. But I think your website is the best place to um, take a look at the work. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mitch. It's been fun. Appreciate it, man. Matt, hopefully, stay in touch and good luck in your ventures. You know, you're a good guy. Thank you. I'm not just saying that to be nice either. So if I didn't like you, I would say, I don't like you, Matt. So, yeah, you'd have just like closed the window a while ago. Closed the window. I'm not interested. <laughs> good luck, man. Well, thanks to Mitch for joining me for a great conversation on the podcast this week. I highly recommend listeners take a moment to check out his powerful black and white images over on his website or on the show notes found on my website at mattpainphotography.com. I also encourage you to reach out to Mitch and let him know what you thought about the episode this week. Also, I wanted to mention that if you're a Spotify listener, you can now leave reviews on that app. I'd love to see a few of you dedicated fans leave some reviews either there or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for your help and support. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me if there's any way that I can help you. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.